Well, you know, when you look in the Bible, there are a number of words that, that are found in the Bible that we, that, uh, we actually call them theological terms. They're words that, that we as believers ought to know. Let me give you some of them, and, and most of you know them. If you've ever had the 2-2 study, which is my favorite thing to teach, we go over some of these terms. The first one is the word justification. Justification means to be declared righteous. Now, justification doesn't make you righteous. It declares you righteous. God declares you to be right. In Galatians 2.16, knowing a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith. And so we are declared righteous simply by faith. There's a second word that's imputation. And this really means to credit from one account to another. This is what makes you righteous. God actually imputes to your account his righteousness. Romans 4.5, to him who does not work but believes believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. So when you believe in Jesus Christ, God actually gives you his righteousness. There's another word, and the word is the word propitiation. Uh, it literally means a satisfactory payment. It means the payment that satisfies. That's what Jesus Christ did. First John 2, 2. He is the satisfactory payment. Not for, he actually says he is the propitiation, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid for the sins of every human being, and God was satisfied. There's another word. That's sanctification. That literally means to be set apart. That's what it is. Second Peter 3, 18 talks about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, and the idea is that as as we, as we are set apart, we're set apart in Christ when we trust in Christ, and then we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. There's another word, and it's the word redemption. Redemption means to purchase by paying a price. And First Peter 1, 18 and 19 go together. I forgot to put the, word, the, the verse 19, but it says, You're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So we're redeemed by the blood of Christ. So redemption is really a key word there. And then there's one other word, and it's the word expiation. And, and a lot of times we go, expiation? What is that? It's to suffer the punishment or penalty for someone else. In other words, it means to take somebody's place. The idea of this word is substitution. And that's what we saw last time when basically Judah was willing to be the substitute for Benjamin. Benjamin had been found guilty. They said, Benjamin, well, Joseph said, you stole my cup. Now you're going to be a slave. And Judah said, I will take his place. We see that Jesus Christ is our substitute. It is the greatest truth of all that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We owe death. Jesus Christ came and took our place. He died in our place on the cross. He offered himself in our place. And the Bible is full of the aspect of substitution. We'll talk about it more in just a little bit. But in this section of Genesis, we see Judah and his substitution as Judah offers himself to become a slave in place of Benjamin. And so we'll just review that a little bit, and then we'll go get into the chapter. Now, let me remind you of where we are. Joseph... Uh, has been risen up. Of course, his brothers some 20 years earlier hated him, uh, were jealous of him, sold him into slavery to the Ishmaelites, to the Midianites, and they took him off and he ended up in Egypt. And just through a strange events, he got, he, he was the slave of a man named Potiphar, and then he got thrown into prison. And then because God used him to tell the, what dreams meant, God raised him up to number two in Egypt, only behind the Pharaoh. And of course, the famine has come and he told him what to do. And so Pharaoh says, since you know what to do, you're going to be the most powerful man in Egypt other than me. And, of course, Joseph looks like an Egyptian now. In fact, he's got an Egyptian name. He has an Egyptian wife. He has kids. And so when people started coming because of the famine and Egypt had food because Joseph showed them what to do, everybody comes up there. Well, Joseph's brothers came, and they didn't know it was Joseph. 
And he looked out and saw it was them, and he began to test them because he remembered how they treated him. He knew he had a younger brother back at home, and he wanted to know how they were treating Benjamin. What were they doing with Benjamin? Did they despise Benjamin like they despised him? Had they killed Benjamin like they tried to, to get rid of him? And so he tested them. And, and here's what he did over those that we've seen it all. He put money in their sacks to see if when they came back, would they bring the money back? In other words, were they honest? He te- took the brother Simeon and kept him there, and he was testing them to see whether they would leave that brother and never come back and get him or come back. He said, I want to uh, I want to ask for Benjamin. I want Benjamin to come. And sure enough, they brought Benjamin there. And when he put them all together, brought them into his house, let them eat, he gave Benjamin five times as much as everybody else. He wanted to see how they would respond. Would they be jealous? Would they be upset? Would they look over there and say, it's not fair, Benjamin's getting more than us? But they didn't. And then the last but not least, he hid his special cup in Benjamin's sack and accused Benjamin of being a thief. And they were going to make Benjamin a slave. And the real question is, would they leave him? Would they say, well, Benjamin, you got yourself in trouble. We're going to go back home. Or what would they do? And we saw last time how Judah stepped forward to say, uh, I would like to take Benjamin's place. And we'll see how all that is. It's really, really powerful. As we looked at tonight, these two big areas, again, I just want to remind you, substitution and sovereignty and forgiveness, which I think go together. Let's, let, let me get you a little quick review. Look at chapter 44. Go back to 44 just so you can see the review. And look at verse 2. Genesis 44, verse 2. This is Joseph telling his steward, his, his house steward, his, his servant. Here's what he tells him to do. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. And so he's tricking him. He's sending them back home. Every, they think everything's fine, but he's put this silver cup in there. And what he's going to do is accuse Benjamin of stealing. And, of course, after they got just outside of town, he sent the slave. He sent his steward there, and the steward stomped him and said, How did y'all do this? How could y'all treat us so badly? We gave you food and everything, and you got to eat with the main man. And what did you do? You stole his cup. And they all went, What are you talking about? Nobody stole his cup. We don't steal cups. In fact, we brought money back. And so... One of them says, well, I'm going to tell you what, if anybody has the cup, uh, that person's going to get killed and all the rest of us will be slaves. Which, that's a pretty stupid thing to say. And then anybody could say, hey, don't say any more. That's enough. But he says, no, 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 that's not the way we'll do it. Whoever has the cup will become the slave and the rest of you may leave. And they started with the oldest on purpose, went all the way down, got all the way down to the youngest, and sure enough, there was the cup. Look at verse 10. He said, uh, verse 10, he said, this is in verse 44. So he said, let it now also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. That's what he said. So they went and did it. And verse 12 says, he searched beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, which shows great emotion. They ripped their clothes. And each man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. They went, oh, my goodness. And so they loaded everything. And they take, basically, they come back. And when they got back, you could see Joseph, who looks like an Egyptian. They don't know who he is. He steps out and says, how could you people do this to me? That was my cup. Don't you know that I'm kind of slick? I can, I can find out things. You thought you were going to steal my cup? So here's the deal. Whoever stole my cup, my slave. The rest of you, I'm going to let you go. Well, we see that Judah is going to take leadership. He's going to step forward. And he explains. If you remember verse 30. 
He says, now therefore when I come, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us. What if I go back home to my dad and Benjamin is not with us since his life is bound up in the lad's life. When he sees the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servant will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to shield and sorrow. He basically says, can I talk to you for a minute? If we go back home and Benjamin is not there, my daddy loves Benjamin more than everybody else. And if we go back home and Benjamin's not there, he'll die. I, I, I just I can't, I can't let that happen. So verse 33. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. This is one of the most powerful places in the Scripture. Would you do it? I mean, being a slave in Egypt is not that good. You know what I mean? It's not. It was a horrible place. And here is Judah willing to willing to take Benjamin's place. And let me tell you, Judah grew up watching Joseph get everything. And that's why they were all mad and they didn't care what happened to Joseph. And then you know that after Joseph they thought was dead, dad then put all his energy in Benjamin. And now Benjamin gets everything. And so you're Judah... And you realize, listen, no matter what, I've got to come to the place that if this is what's best for my dad, I'm willing to take the place of my brother. Substitution. Judah says, let me, let me be the slave and let Benjamin go home. I mean, that is a powerful statement. That's the test. Will they leave Benjamin or not? You can see Joseph. And when, when Judah said this to Joseph, you know Joseph thought, they're not the same as they used to be. My brother is willing to basically give his own life for Benjamin. You know, if you're Judah, you want to look over at Benjamin and go, why did you get the cup? What are you thinking? Right? How could you put us in this situation? But, Benjamin said, I didn't, get, I, don't, I didn't get the cup. I don't know how it's in there. The substitution of Judah. Now, I want you to think about this. Because the substitution of Judah is really a foreshadow. Because some 1,500 years later, there will be another one from the tribe of Judah. A descendant of this man who will become the greatest substitute of all time. And that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the line out of the tribe of Judah who becomes the Lamb of God. Now think about that. He's the line from Judah, but he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's think about substitution for just a second because we talked about it last time, and I think it's pretty powerful. We, we, we need a substitute. If you realize just how bad we are, I mean, when you really think about life, it, there's not one of us in this room that has any merit that we could say to God, listen, you see what I've done. That should be enough to let me in. Now, some of you may have grown up like me, thinking that maybe you go to God and get to God by being good. Because that's what I, I didn't know. I never went to church. Y'all know that. I never went to church once when I was six, once when I was 12. I really believed that if you did more good than bad, it would be a big scale. You'd stand before God. And if you had more good on the good side than bad on the bad side, you'd get to go to heaven. See, I didn't understand that I had no merit in myself. I, had, I did not understand that wages of sin is, what is it, Dad? I thought the wages of sin was good works. 
How do you pay for a sin? I thought you paid for a sin by doing good. So every time I did a bad, I did a good. I, the scale has to balance. In fact, there has to be more goods than bads. But that's wrong because the wages of sin is not good works. The wages of sin is death. Every one of us owe God death. Every one of us is going to be separated from God forever. But Jesus Christ said, I will take their place. He became our substitute. If you think of 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ died for our sins once for all. That substitute. The just for the unjust. That substitution. Back, it's the same thing. Christ died for sin once for all. Once for all time and for all people. Justification, uh, substitution. The just, that's him, Jesus. For the unjust, that's us. That substitution. The verse goes on to say, to bring us to God. The only way that you have a way to God is through Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Him. There's no other name given under heaven among men where you might be saved except Jesus Christ. That's Acts 4.12. That's it. To bring us to God. One of the greatest truths in the Scripture is substitution. Look at a couple of verses here. Second Corinthians 5.21 For God hath made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, substitution. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Over and over, it's substitution. Aren't you glad you have a substitute? If we did not have a substitute, how would we have a relationship with God? How would we have one? It's not possible. It's not possible. And people don't always think about it that way. They say, well, if you, could, if you could try to live a good life, if you could do good, if you could do this. No. We never want to take for granted what our Savior Jesus Christ has done for us. And so just a review from last time. I think it's such a powerful truth. I wanted you to see that. So here is, is Judah willing to be the substitute. 1,500 years later, a descendant of Judah becomes the line of Judah who becomes the Lamb of God who becomes our substitute. Wow. I, I just don't think we can take that for granted. I think it's too powerful. Uh, when you talk to people, I think there's so many people that when you talk to them about salvation, and that's the thing we talked about this morning, that we want to we want to take the good news message, the salvation message to people. Uh, there's so many people out there that say, why do I need a Savior? What are you talking about? I don't need Jesus. I don't need anything. But the truth is, everyone has sinned and come forward short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And so... We have to have a Savior. I think that, that the grace of God is so amazing that if a people can ask, actually grasp what God has done for us, and it is not based on our merit in any way, shape, or form, but on Jesus Christ. Well, let's see what happens. Because Joseph has now seen it all. He has seen his brother Judah willing to become a slave for his brother Benjamin. And I think, he has, I think they've all passed the test. And I think he's ready now to let it be known. Watch what happens. Verse, chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Now, it's, it's like saying he could not control himself any longer. He is he's about to burst. He's about to say, Listen, do you all know who I am? But he didn't want to do that in front of his servants. Remember, he is second only to Pharaoh. And this is going to be an emotional thing. And he has to maintain that uniqueness and difference. If you remember when they ate, 
We talked about it when they got ready to eat in the last chapter when Joseph brought his brothers in and they were going to eat and he put his family, his brothers at one table and he put them in order from the oldest to the youngest, youngest to the oldest, put them there. And then the rest of the Egyptians ate at a separate table because the Egyptians don't eat with Hebrews because the Hebrews eat different uh, foods that they don't eat. But Joseph had his own table because Joseph couldn't eat with these Egyptians because he was too important. He wasn't their level. They were on his level. He's the important man, second only to Pharaoh. So he doesn't want them to see what's about to happen, at least not at this stage. So when Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, he said, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. The emotions are so strong. He has just been testing them. They had passed the test. He wanted everybody to leave. He wanted to be alone with his brothers. You can almost see him saying, some of his, some of his servants saying, wait a minute, I don't think, are you sure you want us to leave you alone with these, with these people? I mean, you, you know who you are. You're asking us all to leave. If you saw Joseph, what would he look like? An Egyptian. He probably walked like an Egyptian. Probably talked like an Egyptian. Watch what happens. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard of it. He wept so loudly. This, there's, I think you're going to see emotions of both joy, extreme joy. It was already heard. Not only did his servants hear this. But the word got all the way back to Pharaoh's household that, that Joseph, number two on the list, is weeping. And I'm assuming they probably understood it to be maybe joy or something. They, they, who knows? Who knows? Well, here's the details. Look at verse 3. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? Look at this question. I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? Well, you know what? Why didn't he ask that the day before? You know, when they came, all he basically did was put them in that room and let them eat with him. And he, you know, put them in a, a very special... You know, if you're, if you're the Jewish guys, if you're the brothers, you probably wondered all this time, why is, God, why is this man doing this? Why did he let us eat with him by himself? How could he put us in order, knowing youngest to oldest, oldest to youngest? How could he know that? And, and, and now they feel like somebody, we're in trouble. But then he says, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Wait a minute. What's your first thought? Joseph says, it's me. I'm Joseph. I'm alive. Is my father, how is he? Is he still alive? Why would they be dismayed? Huh? Right. They're going, well, if this man is alive, I mean, it was Joseph, and he's this powerful, and what did we do to him? We sold him into slavery. Maybe this is not the greatest news we ever heard in our lives, right? I mean, maybe it's not the best news. It says they were dismayed at his presence. They begin to think. They begin to put two and two together. We got the special meal. He knew the order. We've seen all these privileges. He's done things that only Joseph would know. And I think dismayed because they realize if this is Joseph, they did him wrong. He's now a powerful man. What will he do? What if he looked at him and said, do you remember when you made me slaves and made me a slave? I'm going to make every one of you a slave. You will never see the light of day again. Could he have done that? Just like that. Just like that. 
they're all a little bit scared. And they don't know. Realize this is both good and bad. It's good. Their brother's alive. You know, and they could say, well, we didn't kill him. <laughs> we didn't kill him. At least he's still alive. But it's also bad because they don't know what's fixing to happen. So look what happens. He, Jesus said to them, come closer. Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. See, he wanted to because he didn't look like himself. He looked like an Egyptian. He may be moving stuff and say, look, look at me. Look at me. I'm the one you sold into slavery. Wait a minute. Would, who could know that Joseph was a brother sold into slavery? Nobody. It has to be Joseph. If it was just some other man, he wouldn't know that. Now, I want you to see something. We're going to see forgiveness based on the sovereignty of God. You ever thought about this? Have you ever, you, you've, you've gone along and something happened to you? Somebody did something to you and, and you went, oh man. And he said, well, I just have to trust God because God knew this was going to happen. Right? You ever thought that way? Have you ever realized that sometimes you forgive because you go back and say, listen, I know that was a bad thing somebody did to me, but I just, I have to let that go because, because who's in charge here? God is. He's working all events. Watch what happens. Notice what he says in verse 5. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why? For God sent me before you to preserve life. He's actually saying you don't need to be upset because, because you sold me here because really God's the one that sent me here, not you. You know, he's showing his forgiveness. He says, I'm... I'm not mad at you. I'm not going to get you back. Because it, even though you sold me here, it was God who put me here. In fact, I like this way to say it. It was, it was their action. You sold me. But it was God's actions. God sent me here. Joseph was certain that it was God's will and not man's will that was controlling every one of these events. I think, did, I, did we put the verses? Yeah, four times in these verses. Look at verse 5. Look what he says. Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why? For God sent me before you to preserve life. Look at verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. It's God who did it. Look at verse 8. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Look at verse 9. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over Egypt. Everything is what God did. Joseph's not going around saying, What did you think you were doing to me? You guys, you put me in this place. It's a miracle that I got where I am today. That's not what he says. He says, You don't need to be mad because you sold me into slavery because it was really God who's working the whole thing. You remember at the very end of the book, chapters 49 and chapter 50, when Jacob dies and the son and the brothers all realize that dad is gone and Joseph is left there and Joseph can do anything he wants. And they all come to Joseph and say, dad said before he died for you not to do anything bad to us. And he said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. He never goes past the point that it's God who's working everything. And so four times he says, it's God, it's God, it's God. He said, notice, you did it, but God was working. 
And we understand that forgiveness, and we understand how forgiveness and the sovereignty of God fits together. Matthew Henry said this. He said, realize that every experience in life, both pleasant and painful, has been allowed by God to fulfill his purpose. That's really true. I mean, when you think about it, nothing's going to ever come into your life that hadn't already passed through what he wants. Listen, there's no mistakes. There's no, God doesn't go, oh my gosh, I didn't plan that. I didn't want that to happen to them. Everything that ever comes into your life has been allowed by God. He is the sovereign ruler of all things. That's why Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. Those that love God, those that are called according to his purpose. It didn't say all things are good. It said all things work together for good. When we see life and events from God's perspective, we'll be able to forgive. When those things that have been done to us, those wrongs that have been done to us, we realize that God is working. Even And listen, that doesn't mean people aren't accountable for their actions. Listen, let me tell you something. If somebody does you wrong and you forgive them, of course, because you're supposed to forgive them, and you look at them and say, it's all based on the fact that God is sovereignly working all events, does that mean that person who did you wrong is off the hook? Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We don't get vengeance. We don't get back at people who do us wrong. We trust God because God is sovereignly working all things. But who deals with people who do wrong? God does. Sometimes in our, in our lives, when somebody hurts us, we, we do want to get them back. We say, they're not going to get away with this. They did this. That's not right. I'm going to get them back. What the scripture says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It says, don't return evil with evil. Return evil with good. That's really hard. That's really hard. I mean, isn't it a lot easier to return evil with evil than evil with good? Joseph said, you sold me, but God sent me. And why? To preserve life. Notice again verse 5. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Whose life? The life of the Jews. I think think when he says life, he's talking life in general for all these people, but it's particularly referring to the fact that the Jewish people, the family of Jacob and his his sons and and the descendants that will come after have to be preserved. Why is that? Because the Messiah is coming. In fact, who's got to keep living? Judah's got to keep living at least get his kids and all these things. Look at verse 6. He says, For the famine has been in the land two years, and there's still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Listen, there's still two years, five years to go. Once again, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in this earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. God sent me to preserve you. The remnant is the nation of Israel. The remnant is where the Messiah is coming. Listen, if, if, if we could look at the world and know that the Messiah is going to come and we saw the famine and we saw the Jewish people about to starve to death, we'd be saying, something's got to be done. We've got to save those people because if those people don't keep living, we don't have a Savior. We don't have a Messiah. What if, what if Haman had wiped out all the Jewish people at the time of Esther? Where's the Savior? 
I mean, you think about it all throughout history. God has continually preserved His people. Preserved His people. It is so important to keep this family alive. The covenant promises were made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and will come through this family. It's powerful. It's God who did this to protect the nation. Listen, when God brings things into your life, it is His sovereign plan to protect you, take you, use you, and take care of you. Now, what people did He use to save His people? Which one? The Egyptians. Exactly right. God brings the nation of, uh, of, of Israel down to Egypt. He uses Egypt to protect them. Hosea 11.1 1 later on says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. He's referring to the people, the nation of Israel. Hosea 11.1 1, Out of Egypt I have called my people, my son. That's a foreshadow. Because let me ask you a question. What people... Is he going to use to preserve the Messiah, Jesus Christ? Egypt. Do you remember when Jesus was just less than two years old and Herod decided that he would kill all the boy babies two years old and under? An angel came to Joseph in a dream and said, Take the child and Mary and flee to where? Egypt. And there he'll be safe. And so God took his son, Jesus Christ, and took him down to Egypt and he stayed there. And then, you know, when he came back some years later, do you know what passage Matthew quotes when he says, out of Egypt I have brought my son, Hosea 11.1. 1. He quotes the same passage. The nation of Israel going into Egypt to be preserved and coming back out is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ going into Egypt, being saved from Herod, and then coming back out some years later. That's what we see. Egypt is the place that God will provide and protect his people, and Egypt is the place that God will provide and protect his Savior. You know, there's a uniqueness between the Egyptians and the Jewish people. There's a place in Isaiah which says that one day, Egypt will worship the God of Israel. You understand that? The people of Egypt one day will believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. In fact, he even says in Isaiah that there will be a highway running from Egypt to Israel to Assyria. And, and all three will worship the God of Israel. A uniqueness there. Joseph himself is a type of Christ. Joseph is a type of Christ. Let me show you. First of all, and I don't know if you can read this. It's a little bit small. Uh, the next page is a little bit big, but this, this is a little bit small. On, on the left side, it says, Joseph was beloved by his father. And Christ, he's a picture of Christ. That means the foreshadow of what Joseph did is, is fulfilled in Christ. Joseph was loved, was loved by the father. Christ was loved by his father, Matthew 3.17. Joseph was sent to his brothers. If you remember when his father sent him to his brothers and said, Go see how your brothers are doing. Jesus Christ was sent to his brothers. John 1.11, he came into his own. He was rejected. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Jesus Christ was rejected by his brothers. John 1.11, referring to his brothers as the nation of Israel. He came into his own and his own received him not. Joseph became a slave. Jesus Christ became a servant. The word servant there is slave. That's Philippians 2, 8. He left the glories of heaven and became a servant. Go ahead on. And then we got Joseph became a savior. He saved his own people. Jesus Christ is a savior. 1 John 2, 2. 
Joseph is the one that gave bread. We, we talk about when they came, Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And all of the, his brothers bowed down to him, and everyone will bow down to Jesus Christ. Romans 14, 11, every knee shall bow, and every pray, tongue will give praise to God. Philippians 2, that, that the, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So he, Joseph is really a, a kind of a type of Christ. There's a lot of great things there. Notice what he says in verse 8. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his household and a ruler over the land of Egypt. Now, that plainly releases them from the debt, doesn't it? He said, it's not you who sent me here. It is God. And that's what you call forgiveness. When you say, it's not really you, you didn't really do it, God did it. He's realizing that God is sovereign. He's working on all the events of our lives. When things go wrong, we have to say, God, I just have to trust you. Now, watch what he says. He's got the plan, and this is where we're going to stop. He says, hurry up, hurry, and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. What does he think happened to Joseph? He, he thinks he was killed by an animal years and years ago, 20-something years ago. He thinks he was killed by an animal because all they brought back was his coat of many colors, and they put blood on it and said, Is this your son's? Looks like an animal must have ate him up, you know, right? So when they go back and say, Go back and tell my father I'm alive. That's not going to be very easy either because he's going to say to them, I thought y'all said that an animal, I thought, what did... What do you mean? How could he have gotten down into Egypt? Well, <laughs> truth is, we uh, we uh, sold him into slavery. But it really wasn't us. Joseph said it wasn't us. It was God, right? <laughs> I love verse ten. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. When you get back here, you're going to come back and you're going to have everything and you're going to live in the best land. In fact, the land of Goshen was the best part of the land of Egypt that anyone could live in. And that's where he tells them they're going to be. Now, we're going to see, as I said a while ago, uh, the, the problem that I, that, that I run into is how are they going to tell Jacob how Joseph is still alive? You know, they could, they, they, they've had, they've had a pretty good habit of lying over the years. I guess they could go back and say, well, when we found his coat, we thought he was dead. I guess maybe he escaped somehow and got down to Egypt somehow, and now he's, now he's number two in the all-time list there. However, most likely they know that once they get down there, that Joseph is going to tell the truth to their father. We'll see how that goes. What have we seen? Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Judah becomes the substitute for Benjamin. We see the issue of forgiveness and sovereignty and how it fits together. So let me give you some applications. First one is this. Rest in our substitute, Jesus Christ. He is our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 Peter 3.18, over and over again. He is our substitute. He is the one who died for us. Let me say this. And I know just about everybody in this room. Anyway, I know most of you very well. But if for some reason, when you think about salvation, when you think about how does a person go to heaven, you realize that you cannot do it yourself. There's not one thing you can do. You have nothing in yourselves to give to God. We've sinned. We owe God death. Our righteousness is filthy rags. You have to have a substitute. Jesus Christ has already come. He's already died in your place. 
God has taken the payment of Jesus Christ and paid for your sins. And now all that's left is you take the gift. Because Jesus Christ and God is saying to you, I give you the gift of eternal life. I've done it all. I've been your substitute. You take the gift. And if any of you in this room have never taken the gift, where you're sitting right now, you could say, Lord, I take the gift of eternal life. I believe that Jesus is my substitute. I'm trusting him and him alone to give me life. And that's salvation. That's not works or goodness or righteousness or faithfulness or anything. It's trusting in Jesus Christ who is our substitute. The second one is just remember this. Forgive one another based on God's sovereignty. Trust God and leave the vengeance. It's supposed to say leave the vengeance to God. It's not supposed to say Old Testament God. Uh, uh, it's just really supposed to say trust God and leave the vengeance to God. That's, that's, what, it, well, that's what we have to do. Because we have to realize that uh, all the events and all the things that happen to us God allows it. Now, once again, that does not release people from the consequences of their actions. Because you can't say, I'm going to do this person wrong, but they're going to forgive me because we realize this is all in God's plan, and I'll just get away with it. That's not how it works. But the truth is, you must forgive. If you do not forgive, you will become bitter. If you become bitter, you will become angry. When you become angry, you become depressed. And that's not a very good life. When we trust Jesus Christ or realize we trust Jesus Christ as Savior and that we proclaim to others that He indeed is the substitute and all who believe in Him has eternal life. And as we go through life, we forgive knowing that God is sovereignly working all events. Let me pray, and if you've got questions, comments, we'll deal with them. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage, Lord, and, and what we've been seeing. And Lord, thank you for Jesus being the substitute, how he died on, our, died on the cross and paid for our sins and rose again. He took our place. He is the one who came to die for us, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God, the one who took our place. Thank you, Lord, for that. I hope and pray that every one of us in this room, that we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior and our substitute. Lord, we realize that in life, as we go through life, sometimes people are going to do us wrong. We just have to forgive them, Lord, knowing that you have allowed that to happen in our lives because we trust you knowing that you work all things together for good and you work all things according to the counsel of your will. May we trust you and rest in you and leave the vengeance to you. Thank you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.